Well, good morning. I'm with Evan with the shock that July could actually be coming to a close already. Goodness gracious. Where does the time go anymore? I don't know. Well, what else is coming to a close this morning is our summer series on building prayer closets in our lives personally and corporately. And if you'll remember, we started this summer with the intention of doing some spiritual home renovation that if our lives lacked meaningful points and places of connecting with God, that we would build that into our lives throughout this summer and learn the great value of it. Uh, If we lack that corporately, if we're not a people who are used to getting together with others to pray for God's kingdom to come, that 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 would be something that got built into our lives. And so uh, we started that series in uh, June after Pentecost, and then we are closing it out today. Um, Let me start with a a thought from Mr. about Mr. Charles Spurgeon. I quote Mr. Charles Spurgeon quite a bit. He is a pastor from the 1800s. He lives in a time period that is not the information age. He does not have the ability to go global the way that we do. Uh, but yet, he is a man whose ministry did go global and had an impact all over the world and is still having an impact Today, he was a pastor for about 40 years, I believe, uh, in the 1800s in London, England. And I, I, quote, I closed the message last week with a quote from him. I'm going to start with just a little piece of information about him that's relevant to our topic today. Charles Spurgeon is called the Prince of Preachers. He was a megachurch preacher long before today's megachurches and preached without a microphone or any other means of amplification. At one service at London's Crystal Palace, he preached to a congregation of 23,654 souls, listening intently on the edge of their seats. His sermons, totaling 20 to 25 million words, fill 63 volumes and stands as the largest set of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. That's not including his hundreds of publications and books. These volumes were published weekly over a 20-year time period in The Sword and the Trowel, with the final volume being released in 1885. When he became pastor of the New Park Street Church, it had 232 members. By the end of his pastorate 38 years later, the number had increased to 5,311 and became the largest independent church in the world. In 1865... His sermons sold 25,000 copies every week and translated into 20 languages. Now remember, this is the 1800s. This is not the information age. To get something published on a global scale was an amazing feat. People from all over the world attended his services, including Prime Minister Gladstone, members of the royal family, members of parliament, John Ruskin, Florence Nightingale, and General James Garfield, later president of the United States. During his lifetime, it is estimated that Spurgeon preached to 10 million people. It is documented that one woman was converted through reading a single page of one of Spurgeon's sermons wrapped around some butter she had bought. (laughs) Considered by many to be the greatest preacher England ever produced, it is any wonder why he is called the Prince of Preachers. That's what others called him. Spurgeon considered himself 
a man of prayer among a people of prayer. He gave all his success to the intercession and prayers of his congregation. His success was a direct result of his congregation's prayers and he knew it. It was said that the whole church helped produce Spurgeon. Ian Murray wrote a book called The Forgotten Spurgeon a number of years ago. In that book, Murray says, On one of his visits to Europe, Spurgeon met an American pastor who said, I've long wished to see you, Mr. Spurgeon, and to put one or two simple questions to you. In our country, there are many opinions as to the secret of your great influence. Would you be good enough to give me your own point of view? After a moment's pause, Spurgeon said, My people pray for me. There is something unique about prayer that God has designed for our lives and for what he does on a worldwide scale. And you cannot escape that. There is this strange connection between the kingdom of God coming and the people of God asking. It highlights something that, if that be true, and one can't read the Bible and conclude otherwise, it it is a discrepancy. It is a confusing thing to stare into the, the body of Christ and find prayer displaced or lost or something that we misplaced in all the other activities of our lives, all the other activities of our gatherings and our church life. We, we take this summer to wrestle with this issue because it's indispensable. It's not like there's a, you know, I'm preaching on a subject this morning that they, this might be for some of you. This might, this might be for a time period for the church one day, maybe. No, no, this is critical to what God does and how God does what he does. So if you and I, and I say if in the kindest way, because it's more likely that since you and I have somehow prescribed to the idea that we could have a Christian life that minimizes prayer, we have committed the gravest of errors. If we are here this morning in our personal prayer lives, our personal prayer closets, I've just used that terminology to illustrate that, that there is a time and a place, there's a meeting place with God. That prayer closet idea that we started with by observing Jesus' life, it necessitates a few factors. If you're here as a busy American and you figured out how to squeeze God into your pocket while you do life, that's not what I'm talking about. This is not, this is not pocket God. This is prayer closet God. So I, I know how tempting it is, and please hear me. I'm not saying it's wrong in and of itself to, to pray on the go. To pray while you're doing other things. To be in the middle of something else. You got caught in the waiting room. You, you're in traffic. And you, know, you just turn that into a prayer time. That, that's great. I, I, all of us should be doing that. That's not a prayer closet. That's a by the way I had a moment God moment. A prayer closet is an intentional constructed place that has a particular feel to it, aim to it. 
It's going to highlight words like waiting on God, seeking the face of God, as we'll see today. So I, I, to answer whether I have a prayer closet is to answer whether I have a place, a, a, a geographic place, a, a place in time where I actually show up and encounter the presence of God. So that's what we're after this summer. That's what our great hope and desire was that we would emerge from this summer with prayer closets in place. Some of us may be blowing the dust off of, finding the key to, and unlocking the door to our prayer closets that we once had, and and repopulating those places. This morning I'm calling this final message, My Prayer Closet, Strategic and Satisfying strategic and satisfying right it it is both so we just read from mr spurgeon's life our prayer closets are strategic places that there are places that exist in the plan of god that they participate in a strategy Right? Charles Spurgeon's ministry and the ministry of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London that had a global influence. Prayer played a strategic role in that. Of all the things that Charles Spurgeon, that we're still talking about this man, we're still quoting from him, of all the things that gave birth to such an impact all over the world, he simply says, my people pray. There's a strategy in prayer and the kingdom of God advancing. Jonathan Edwards, who led and participated in the Great Awakening in the 1700s, said, When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayer of his people. When you visit church history and you find these places of revival, where God steps in and does something amazing, you will find stories on the front end of that revival of people who began to feel this drastic need to pray. And they begin to gather one or two, a few. And it grew. And a seeking and a waiting on God took place. Listen, did you know the, 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 the adjusting phrase of the Bible is still true? You have not... Because you ask not. The Bible does say that. And listen, we are a church who features, rightly so, because the Bible features, the sovereignty of God. We do not believe in a God who is running to and fro on earth in a panic constantly because things are out of his control. But we also believe in a God who mysteriously puts into our lap an activity that he then can turn around and say, you you have not. Because you ask not. There is a strategic dimension to our prayer lives that's desperately needed for the kingdom of God to come among us in our day. And so I very much believe this is God awakening this in our church for what it precedes. And I I can't begin to tell you exactly what it precedes. Is Is it the preceding? I've heard one of the pastors this morning talking about just a sense of protection is the awakening of prayer in our midst a a preceding activity for the protection that we're going to need in the days ahead is it the preceding action for revival that God intends to do 
in certain things among us, in the salvation of people that God intends to bring in, in the invigorating and the calling dimension of individual lives that are about to come to life in some ways. I I don't know exactly what this is going to proceed, but when God awakens prayer, it precedes things. And I believe he is awakening prayer among us. One other thing that I cannot overlook in our hasty day is, is prayer is strategic personally. It's a, it's a strategic piece of what you and I will ever become spiritually. Uh, I think I've used this illustration before. I, I think it's very appropriate and helpful. You know, prayer in the organism of who I am is, it, it's kind of like the digestive tract. You know, if, if listening right now is eating, right? This is the... The table we come to and we hear teaching and when we open the Bible we read it and we chew on it and it it gets to us at some level but you know when you swallow something another system kicks in right your digestive tract kicks in and and it takes the nutrients that were in what was presented to it and it extracts it And then it sends it into the cells of our body, right? So your bloodstream is involved and cells and organs are involved. And our body is health. You know, you are what you eat. Well, you are what you listen to in the spiritual sense. You are what you get around. You are what you meditate on. But you just aren't that without a digestive tract. You just aren't that because I read the Bible, but I don't pray. Well, then it's sort of like chewing and not swallowing, You might be able to say, oh, that really tasted good at a certain level, but it never gets transferred into who you are. It doesn't show up at your fingertips. It doesn't make your hair grow. It doesn't make your organs become healthy because you don't have a digestive tract. There is a strategy in God that prayer takes concepts and ideas and something you're going to hear today, something you're going to hear today. That's why we preach. It is going to touch you uniquely. Not everything I'm going to say this morning will, but something will. Are you going to take the time to digest that? Or are you just going to like, like, like you're in a tasting line? And spit that out and go, that was, yeah, that was really good. I, yeah, I remember tasting that. But it didn't do anything for you beyond this meeting. Because there was no strategic prayer that took that thing and wrestled it into your bloodstream and made it come alive in the way uniquely God wanted to say it to you and showed you which organs and pieces of your life that needs to get translated into. Maybe it goes into your, your meditations, it goes into your relationships, it goes into your marriage, it goes into your energy and activity of life. But without prayer, if you don't have a prayer closet, you're just chewing things and spitting them out. But prayer plays a strategic role in our lives. And so this has been a worthy study, a very needed study. But I don't want to just conclude by saying prayer is strategic, although we're going to look at this in just a second in Psalm 27. Prayer is meant to be deeply satisfying. This, This is not just like an assignment that in the Christian life... Just make sure you check this box, right? This is really important. And it's one of those things every Christian has to do. And it's duty, etc. There is a satisfaction in prayer. Because prayer is a unique means of communion with the living God. 
of being with him in a unique way. We're with him in other ways. But prayer is is an interaction, an exchange with the presence of God. And do you realize how primary that is to our existence? Before there was anything to do, any assignment for man, any other relationship that man was to have, God formed man out of the dust of the earth. And what did he do? He breathed into man the breath of life. Of all the things God was about to give man, the very first thing God gives him, he says, here, have me. You and me are intimately and meaningfully connected before you have anything else in this world, before you tend a garden, before you have a companion for life, before you are conscious of anything else, you are conscious of me. Here, have me. Prayer should be a unique moment that is as satisfying as anything created for us. Yet I know that ain't true. But we ought to be fighting to our last breath for it to be true. Or you do realize when you get to heaven, God will not be a part-time curiosity for you. Do you, do you realize that? You're not going to be in heaven going, I haven't paid attention to God in months. These streaks of gold have just kept me so occupied. You know, the streets of gold advertisement, is, is not, it's not there for you to act like, whoo, man, the streets are gold. No, it's to kind of let you know the stuff you value the most, you're just going to walk on it in heaven. There will be superior values in heaven that your heart will long for and enjoy. And God will be the chief in those categories. All right, if you turn to Psalm 27, we're going to explore King David's experience and I want to say Psalm 27 is the product of David's prayer closet right we've been talking about heroes of the prayer closet David can be added to our list of heroes from which to learn he is going to write this psalm out of his encounter with God out of his time with God and his experience of God that's what prayer closets do for us They give us a taste and see exchange with the living God. And for King David, there is going to be a reality as we read through this psalm together and just look at pieces of it, that that prayer closet for him was both strategic and satisfying. It was a strategic place for him because of this. And I think I wrote this in your outline. Because life is going to come at you in ways that are hostile Invasive, disruptive, adversarial, overwhelming our capacity or resources. And in those moments, we will need to retreat into a strategic prayer closet. Right? When life gets invaded, goes sideways, comes apart, breaks down, becomes hostile to us, In that moment, you and I are going to need a place to retreat to called a prayer closet. So it's strategically critical. But when you hear the 
heart behind David as well. You're going to find out prayer closets aren't just places to run to when life is kind of rough. They're places to long for with all your heart. Right? So Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it's they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Oh Lord, open our busy, crowded lives to your invaluable word this morning. What a contrast we've already read. A life that can feel one way can have something greater in it that overcomes those feelings. We want that. We need that, Lord. Invite us into our prayer closets with you now. In Jesus' name, amen. So make no mistake, right? What you hear in this verse is going to be painted against the backdrop of fear, of being afraid, right? The force, if you will, that gives us this verse and gives us this psalm. David, why are you writing this psalm? Well, when you mention fear and afraid three times right in its introduction, you get a little bit of a sense of what David's humanity felt like. That apparently there could be moments in life where fear and being afraid was the headline. It's what life really, truly, genuinely felt like. Be be very careful. Uh, I'd say this because I, I think there are sloppy people who mishandle God's word. And, and choose, I don't get how you get permission to do this. They, they choose to craft a ministry that highlights a particular segment of all that God has said. Do you know any ministries like that? I've heard guys defend their ministries like that. By saying, well, there's other people out there who do this and do this and do this. I just feel like God calls me to do this. I'm not sure God calls anybody to develop a following who doesn't teach the full counsel of God. Because the whole idea that you're following somebody and they take you to the same place in scripture over and over and over again. The same themes. The same ideas. I only want to talk about this. You know, when you start naming your ministry uh, grace something or other. Or you start naming it positive this. Or, you know, whatever your little favorite category of all the Bible is, if, if I get you to follow me for a long time and I start only giving you that, that's a confusing thing to do to people. And it gives them a, a brochure version of the Christian life that when life produces an activity that makes you feel afraid, wow, I didn't read anything about that. I didn't know I was going to be fearful. I didn't know I was going to be wondering, where on earth is God? Has God abandoned me? Does any of this even work? No one talked to me about that kind of a life. I was just told to be positive. To think the best. Put your best foot forward. Be the head and not the tail. You know, I, I, that's all I ever heard every time I've, the Bible was open to me. 
So I didn't even know these other Bible verses existed. Can I, can I just tell you that's not that guy's fault? It's your fault. Right? This is available to all of us. Right, so if you st- sit in this audience and you listen over and over and over and over and you're here for a year and two and it's like, Keith, I notice you never ever talk about this. That's your job to notice that. Right, there's a thing called systematic theology. It's a little different than my favorite theology. <laughs> systematic theology just says, I just want to be interested in all God said from cover to cover. And when you open this up, you're going to find Christians... People following God, people have trusted God, freaking out. They're in the Bible, doing the wrong thing in their moment of freaking out. Writing psalms about freaking out. David wrote a lot of psalms where he just starts with, I'm freaking out. He doesn't quite use those words because he wasn't from the 60s. But if he had been, that would have been the first start of his words. Uh, Oh God, I'm freaking You know, that's what he'd have started because life felt that way. And your life is going to feel that way at moments as well. The Lord, David said, is my stronghold. That's a good word. You know that word stronghold? You know what he's referring to there? It's a word for a fortress. So it's a word for a particular location and place that's, that's fortified. It's got this sense of protection from that which is out there. Right? So there's a moment in which retreating to a fortress is, is the right thing to do. But, but you've got to have a fortress to retreat to. Now, I think Ronald mentioned a few weeks ago in his message, he's a big Lord of the Rings fan, um, when you get as old as me, we'll talk about how many times you've actually watched The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, my boys and I have, have a tradition of watching The Lord of the Rings. The extended version, by the way, which is an enormous investment of your life. So if you've ever watched or read the book, The uh, um, Lord of the Rings, you will know what Helm's Deep is. It's this massive fortress that sits in a particular geography of the land that when the, when the humans get in trouble and there's nothing else they can do to fight and win, they retreat to Helm's Deep. This fortress that their hope is inside that fortress, we are protected from what's out there. You know, if you're not a big Lord of the Rings fan, maybe you understand that, you know, in, in Kansas, there are things called shelters, Right? And a tornado is coming. And in that moment, to, to ease the vulnerability of that tornado that's threatening and closing in on your town, you go down into the basement, into the cellar, where there's protection there. In that place, you feel different. You know there's stuff going on out there. Right? You remember World War II and London, England. The bombings that took place. Well, they, they had to retreat underground Listen, in, out in the open you felt a certain way but in that stronghold you felt something else even while all that stuff was still going on out there that's what the psalmist says here the Lord is my stronghold I retreat to a place where I know his nearness where he communes with me where he exchanges something with me that feels like there are thick walls protecting me when I am with him. Now, now listen, you've got a stronghold in your life. And when I say it that way, all of a sudden I highlight that and that might not be a good thing, right? Now, I don't mean the thing that has a strong hold on you when I say that. 
I mean the thing that you retreat to when your life gets out of control, feels threatening, you feel anxious, fearful. What, what do you retreat to in that moment? Right, listen, if, if, if you don't have an active prayer closet, right? So if you're saying, hey, I came to this series of teachings and no prayer closet. Okay, well realize everybody's got to run for their life at some point. Everybody's going to feel afraid. What do you run to? Because if you don't have a prayer closet, you are running to something. It's just not God. Is it food? Do you run to the refrigerator? Is it pornography? Is it alcohol? A drug? Is it an activity? Is it your device? See, at some point, at some point, every one of us has to be honest. We can only stare at our own lives for so long before the things that don't go right, we can't explain, things that are going to threaten us, changes that are about to come upon us. You can only stare at that stuff or just the sheer boredom of it. You can only stare at that for so long before something in you says, I I need to look at something else. I, I, I I need to look at that pie in the refrigerator. And I need to look at it with my taste buds. That's what I need to do. And you know, you kind of, you're all in in that moment, right? It's like, hey, I used to be all intertwined and worried and, and freaked out. And now that, that, there's thick walls between me and that and me and this pie. We are communing together right now. I'm just all about this. Listen, I used to smoke when I was a teenager. And smoking is a weird thing. You know what it does? It kinda, it, it's like a pause button. You know, because I can always remember going out and taking a smoke. You know, you kind of just took a break from whatever you were doing, whatever was going on in life. You just kind of like it was your moment to say, just a minute, I'll be back to reality in a moment. And you'd go off and you'd, you'd light one up and you kind of have this moment where the only thing happening is smoke patterns. <laughs> and how much is left? Smell, right? We create distractions in our lives. Now they become vices and they become the wrong kind of strongholds because it's what we look to to protect us from life. The psalmist says here, hey, when I got in my prayer closet, I discovered God to be my stronghold. The walls that were 10 feet thick that were sufficient to guard me from the things that were threatening me. That's the image he has here. He says, verse 2, when evil assails me. He doesn't say if evil. He said, well, maybe. On the unlikely event that evil is going to show up at your doorstep. Listen, the reality of our lives is, is in God's plan. We are not in heaven and we are not in Eden. We are in some chapter in between. And in that in between chapter, we exist as fallen creatures. So nothing about us just goes in the right direction. And then we discover that there's this infection called sin and it has this power to bend everything in a direction we didn't plan on it going. That's out there. And then we learn there's an actual being that has a personality and desires and aims and ambitions called the devil and he's on the loose. So when you present all that stuff, you don't say in the unlikely event that on your way to heaven you bump into evil. You don't phrase it that way. You just say, when evil 
comes. You better have a prayer closet so that the Lord can be a stronghold to us. Verse 3 says, Though an army encamp against me. These are just visual words. This is an encampment of the enemy. Right? This, is, this is the language used. You know, We don't see this much in modern warfare, but you saw it everywhere in medieval and earlier warfare is the enemy would come against a city and would lay siege to it. And they would surround that city and cut off everything coming in and everything going out. They were encamped. They they weren't necessarily coming over the wall. They weren't necessarily attacking, but they had a hold on you. And you weren't going anywhere now. They owned you and possessed you. And in that encampment, you'd start doing some weird stuff, right? Within these walls, horrible things begin to happen because you had no food. You had no clean sanitation. I mean, you had desperate conditions. You know, they, they would begin to eat each other within these walls. So this is a desperate moment. This is the image of an encampment. And, and that reminds me, it just so happens that this week, we, we have a prayer meeting scheduled for folks who, who have encampment issues in their lives. They have habits, sin patterns, strongholds of fear that are encamped about you. You, you don't go anywhere without its permission. You get a break when that thing gives you a break. When it lets something into your life, that's when something comes in. Say, listen, some of this stuff can be like pornography or it can be an addiction. It can be a food issue. But it could be a little, you know, a little less headline. It could be a laziness issue. It could be a overextended personality issue. Maybe you've got a fearful personality. But maybe it's more than that. Maybe there's an encampment of fear that surrounds your city and you don't do anything without its permission. Right? This is the image that's here. That needs God to be encountered. In that moment when I look out over the wall of my life. And I see an encampment around me. I need an encounter with God in my prayer closet. That tells me something about who he's going to be to me. Not just what that thing is to me. And if you, you know this, if you've got a habit that's out of control or it actually is in control, unfortunately, of your life, you know that thing writes the script for you. God was intended to write the script for you. He was intended to say, today you get to do this and today we're going to do this. Not that thing that tells you when you get to come and go and how much freedom you're ever going to have anyway. So question for you, what in your life feels like it's encamping against you? Or what in your life feels like a war arising against me? Listen, this, this, this could be a number of things and you just have to discover what that is. I know for some people, I've just seen this more frequently. Um, an encampment of fear, of, of illness, 
of, of death and departure of loved ones. That, that, that seems to be more common. Maybe that's, maybe that's in camp. Maybe you feel like that's an, an obsessive dimension of, of your life and what you're experiencing as you walk through life. But whatever, whatever it is, Here's the issue. What the, what the psalmist starts with, right? He, he starts with this sense of here's what's going on around the city, right? There's, there's fear, I'm afraid, fearful, war is arising, evildoers are assailing me, adversaries and foes are present, they encamp like an army against me. Yet, I will be confident. It's they who will stumble and fall. Listen, these are realities, right? If life is a scale, these are realities. Foes, adversaries, life falling apart, things coming against you. They, they all get loaded in here. Don't buy the idea that somewhere out there, there's a, there's a version of Christianity where you can get those things to go away and kind of make the scale tip in the other direction. If you just do this, or if you just believe this, or you just, you know, pray a certain prayer a certain way, wiggle your nose and stand on one foot, some of these things will just all of a sudden, your life won't have these in it anymore. You know, please, please just read a little bit further in your Bible. You're going to have these things. But what the Bible promises on the other end of this scale are some greater realities that when you encounter them in God, they begin to outweigh these things. Your life until you get to heaven will not dispense of these things. But you can encounter something about God that changes who you are. David should have kept being afraid, but he wasn't. He was confident because he was a man who got around God. In Psalm 27 verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Well, listen, that's prayer closet language. That's exactly what you do in a prayer closet. You dwell in the presence of the Lord and you look at stuff. And you bring your questions and your life to God in inquiry. In verse 5 he says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Do you notice the emphasis there? Do you notice what David has transferred his trust into? Right? His prayer closet produced a, an enormous sense of what God is doing. Listen, he knew his foes were doing things. He knew what he was incapable of. We know those things. We know what other people are doing in our lives. We know what the economy is doing. We know what health is doing. We, we know these things. David got around God in such a way that he knew what God was doing in that very same moment. Listen, you can sit in this meeting and listen to me say this. If you don't get in your prayer closet and taste and see it for yourself, this will not have an impact on you. David writes this psalm because he's actually been in the presence of God experiencing these very things. 
Listen, when these challenges come, your money won't change them and make them go away. Your position won't do that. A good health report won't do that. You, you are still going to be vulnerable to life in a whole list of ways. And our, our temptation is to, to run to what? What, what? what are we running to? Or are we running to a certain set of people? Do you have a certain list of people in your life that you run to them and you, and you draw from them something, some form of companionship or encouragement? And that's not wrong. God intended that to be in our lives. But that's not a substitute either. Do you run to activity? Just work, double down on work and I'm just, you know, just giving myself to work all the more, all the more, all the more. Hey, that's not wrong to be a hard worker. But God intended to be something in this. And David discovers that. Look at his his use of pronouns here. He will hide me. He will conceal me. He will lift me up. God, I get convinced God's going to do something for me. You, You don't get convinced about that from a distance. You get convinced of that by being with God intimately and hearing his heart and the amount of power that's coming from him. You get impressed that he actually will do this. Another psalm of David, Psalm 25, starts off saying, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I love that phrase. That's a great phrase. That's what prayer closets are doing, right? You get in your prayer closet, that's what you're doing. You're lifting up your soul to God, right? You, you, right? This is that moment we talked about first message. This moment of utter nakedness before God. No pretense, no faking it, no acting like you're having a good day and everybody else is impressed. You know you can't pull that with God. With God, you just lift up your soul. You just take the thing in whatever condition it's in, full of fear, doubt, unbelief, unimpressive, nobody should be following me. And you say, God, this is, this is the condition I'm in. God, to you I lift up my soul. Verse 4, he says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. What are you doing when you're lifting your soul to God? Lord, this is me. Now, who are you in my life? What are you doing in my life? Who do you intend to be to me? God, speak to me, God. This is who I am right now. But I need to see who you are right now. That's what's happening in a prayer closet. That may or may not happen in this meeting. You might do that for a moment. You might do that in praying and coming to an altar. But when you get in your prayer closet, that's what we're doing. And then he promises he will... Shelter me, conceal me, cover me. He will lift me high upon a rock. That's a loaded word, isn't it? You see that word rock in the Bible, you should always be suspicious. Because we know there's, there's coming a rock. The rock is coming. There was a rock that followed them in the wilderness. You remember the story? We get all the way into the New Testament before you found out, oh, it wasn't like a pet rock that you bought at Walgreens. No, this was a divine rock. That image of an immovable giant standing in place can never be overthrown. Boulder of God 
that would be revealed to be Jesus Christ. When Peter confessed his revelation and awareness that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overthrow it. And and God says, "I, I will lift you high on a rock. That's the rock. There's a certain liberty, freedom, and security when you hear that, that your life has been placed in the rock, in Christ. You're in this safe place, this stronghold of who God is in Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. We have died and our lives are now hidden in Christ. And there's, there's a little bit of a, well, okay, if I've died and I'm in Christ, what can that do to me? What can you do to me? What can anything do to me? I've already died. So, I mean, you're going to kill me? I've already died. And my life is now hidden in the rock in Christ. Listen, uh, maybe you're here today and, and, you, and you're drinking the water that's offered through the fountains of this world. Who are trying to pump into you the idea that you, you have to figure out your ultimate destiny and who you're supposed to be. And, and, and it all starts and ends with you. And, and you're trying to find your way through life. Maybe you're here this morning trying to find your way through life of your own sense of ultimate expression. What are you supposed to ultimately be up to? Can I just tell you that God is ultimately up to one thing in your life? It is to transfer, the Bible says it in an interesting way, to transfer you from being in Adam to being in Christ. To put you in Jesus Christ, the rock. To lift your life up from wherever it is and to place you in Christ. You know, that's, that's God's great purpose. That's, he has that agenda and desire and affection for you above everything else about you. No matter how talented you are in some area, no matter how much favor you've got in some area, no matter how much success you've had in some area, and you think, oh, that's my path of destiny. I'm really good at this. I'm known for this. This is going to take me somewhere. Ultimately, that's not what God ultimately is doing in your life. Ultimately, he's seeking to take you out of the race of Adam and put you in Christ and hide you in him and protect you till he brings you to be with him forever. Now, David's going to say one more thing here that's pretty critical. He starts in verse 4 with this. One thing. One thing. One thing have I asked of the Lord. Listen, if I, you know, I think all, this is true for all of us. When we get access to God, we've got many things on our list, right? I mean, it kind of looks like that thing you bring to Santa Claus. Is, you know, I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this. You know, David comes with this sense that one thing, one thing that triumphs above every other thing. One thing that is so strong that it sits at a distance from anything else that I could ever want in my life. One thing that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Remember the house of the Lord was the place where God's presence was, right? It wasn't like he loved the furniture, the carvings, the walls, the marble work, 
Oh, Lord, one thing I desire is just to dwell in those walls. Now, that's not what he's after. We know that, right? What is he after in the house of the Lord? He's after the presence of God. God has said, of all the places on earth, I'm going to dwell right here in this house. Well, then one thing I want is to dwell there with you all the days of my life. To gaze on your beauty. To inquire in your temple. One thing. One thing. Can, can I tell you why prayer closets ever get built? Kind of for the same reason that we build anything. We find value in them. Have you ever gone through the misery of building a house? I know it sounds exciting, but once you do it, you realize, ooh, I don't know if I ever want to do that again. Or renovating or adding on. All of those projects that we do, we do them because we find value in them. We don't find them easy, and they're not cheap. But we find value in them. You build prayer closets because dwelling in the presence of God gazing on his beauty, inquiring in his presence, is valuable. It's only valuable if you're actually experiencing something, right? If this is a non-experience, then I get. Why go back? Why pray? I have no sense that God is anywhere to be found. I stare at nothing. I encounter nothing. And I don't feel like there's an inquiry or exchange going on. Why would I build something? Well, here's the technical reality of why you'd build. In obedience to God, you would build it. And then you would trust him to show up. So, so don't turn and say, well, I'm, I don't have, Keith, I don't know what kind of encounters you're having in your prayer closet. I don't have those kind of encounters, so I ain't building it. Uh, you can't exist without a prayer closet. So if you, it's a little slow and the exchange isn't always there, you still build it in the faith that God will dwell there among you and he will meet you and that place will become something valuable to us. James Johnson in his commentary on Psalms says, the best, most glorious gift you could ask for is to have God himself to wonder at his beauty and praise him with all your heart. Right? That's the best gift. We might wonder how making much of God could be good for us. Why ask to see him, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? After all, wouldn't we be happier if God made much of us instead? Is it that the question of the hour? Isn't that the philosophy that runs contrary to God-centered thinking? It just makes sense to us that God should be making a big deal out of us and out of what's going on with us and what path we're going to ever walk on. God should be at our disposal to make sure We're a bigger deal this year than we were last year. Our life is more comfortable. We've got more wealth in it. There's more health. There's more of everything to go around for me. If God really does love me. How many 
how many human beings are measuring the infinite creator of the universe out of their little bitty world and saying, my world's two and a half inches short of God being great. Can I just tell you, that's not how the universe operates. Your mind is going to get blown when you, when you stand before God. and He's not like that. It makes sense for God to be the center of the universe to him. It makes sense that everything exists, exists to make a big deal out of him. I, I get that it makes sense to us that everything should exist to further my interest. I get that. And in our day, it's off the leash. It, it's quite honestly, it's obnoxious to live with. I can't stand it in myself. And I don't enjoy it coming from others. That's the facts of life. All around us is a world that feels like everything should be furthering me. Everything. You're not furthering me. I don't know. Let me put you on notice because I don't know how much longer I'm going to like you or I might go ahead and thumb you down. <laughs> be done with you because you're not reinforcing my world. I don't even know I want to stay uh, in the same church with you or working with you or married to you. You know, But just because you know you're just not enough about me. You don't, you don't make my life feel like it's going where I feel like it should be going. You know? You're just kind of not about that. And Who told you your life should ever be about that? There's a God who created you. He striped you. He painted you. He designed you. He put parts in you. He he wound you up and he set you in place. All that engineered for something to make a big deal out of him. Sin comes in and crawls in and rewires everything and says, listen, you're going to be making a big deal. It's just not going to be about that guy. You're going to be making a big deal about some other stuff. And, and yet we get tricked by that daily over and over and over. We're living that way. James Johnson says, what, what if anything, God himself doesn't seem very appealing If that's the case, right, we're just not attracted to God, then there is something wrong with you. When a man has no appetite, you assume that he is not feeling well. There's something wrong with his body. When a man has no appetite to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, there's something wrong with his soul. David had an appetite for God. Be disturbed. If there's no desire in your heart toward God, you're not preoccupied. You're not curious about him. You don't long for him. There's no affection in your heart for God. Be disturbed. Do not be comfortable here today. Leave this place like I just told you. You got a disease because you do. And you need to find a cure as fast as possible. Do you realize a... A disaffectionate toward God human being has more in common with a non-Christian than you do with a Christian. That's how non-Christians are. That's how those who have never come to life on the inside are. Nothing has awakened in their soul that, that compels them toward God. And if you're saying, well, nothing compels me toward God. Well, you have more in common with unchristians than you do with Christianity. And you should be disturbed by that. 
That's concerning. I think I wrote this out in your outline. The Bible's voice of wisdom and divine order is that creatures find their fulfillment and satisfaction in making much of and glorifying God. This is being drowned out by the man-centered teaching and emphasis of our age that subtly convinces us that God exists to make much of us. Right? Read these little phrases here with me. You don't have to read them out loud. Just follow along. We are unconcerned with whether God's interests are being advanced, but we are angry and sullen when ours aren't. Is is that true? Do you ever stare out at the kingdom of God and see that it's going what looks like nowhere maybe? It's not advancing. It's not taking the territory. It's not conquering the lives. It's not furthering God's interest in some ways. Do you get angry about that? Does that bug you? Does that get under your skin? Or or, or the only thing that bugs me is when my kingdom isn't advancing. My interests aren't improving and going on. Then I'm angry and I'm sullen and I'm withdrawn from God. And I don't read my Bible or get around him. We are dispassionate in our expressions of worship and affection toward God. But we are all jacked up about how we are perceived and appreciated by others. Right? You may have come in here today and this is your hundredth trip into a church setting where your worship and affection toward God looks like the fuse got blown a long time ago and ain't nothing going on there. You barely sang. You didn't ponder in your heart the words that were going up like an offering to God. There was no expression. There was no longing. There was no delight. There was no, yes, God, that's so true and I'm so grateful. But you'll leave here. And if somebody ain't all jacked up about who you are and singing your praise, you will get all over it, won't you? Listen, I'm just telling you, we're, we're obnoxiously man-centered. We say God, that God is the most important thing in all of our lives. But we live as though our happiness is out there somewhere. And when we finally possess a certain relationship or position or thing, then, then happiness will come to us. Wait, I've got God, the one for whom I was made, but I can't figure out how to be happy. But if I could just get a boyfriend, if I could just get married, if I could just get unmarried, if I could just get that job, if I could just get that career, if I could just live in that location, if I could just go to these places, if I could just have this lifestyle, if if my posts look like that guy's posts, if I could just do that, then it's like I'm on the verge of happiness. I'm just sitting. No, I know I've got God with me, but I'm on the verge of happiness. I'm not happy. Not happy. I'm a very unhappy person. Yeah, I know I've got God and all that, and I know eternally. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I don't have the thing that would really make me happy. Do you have any idea how insulting that is to God? See, this is why we don't venture into prayer closets. Because just, we're just not all that attracted to God. John Piper. Let's see. I don't know who's up here. I know it's not Eric. Uh, Kurt. Kurt, you can come back up, buddy. John Piper says, In the end... The heart longs, 
not for any of God's good gifts, but for God himself, right? Remember, for man, have me. That's, that's the start of our existence. To see him and know him and be in his presence is the soul's final feast. Beyond this, there is no quest. Words fail. We call it pleasure, joy, delight. But these are weak pointers to the unspeakable experience. Let's look at this last quote from this psalm. Psalm 27, verse 7 through 8. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And just look, look at what's contained in that passage. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, right? That goes back to the reality that you and I are not going to be able to create lives where we don't cry aloud. That day is not coming. You haven't made some terrible mistake in your life that's brought you to the day where you cry aloud. Right? Some people think that. It's like when life hurts, they, they, they rewind and go, what, what mistake did I make that brought me here? Where did I get off course? Well, if you want the answer to that, just keep pulling the cord and keep pulling it for a few thousand years until you come face to face with Adam and Eve. That's where this started. Crying aloud started when humanity got booted out of the Garden of Eden. And whether you do everything right and a few things wrong or a bunch of things wrong and a few things right, you're going to be crying aloud. That's a fact. And God says, here, here, are you crying aloud? Is that what life feels like to you? Then God says, seek my face. Do you want the answer to a life is to seek God's face. Listen, as we close this, and I want to pray for us this morning. I hope I just, I feel like an attorney making arguments. I feel that way often, actually. I hope I've argued you into surrendering this summer. That your prayer closet's not negotiable. That you can't have a version of the Christian life that doesn't need it. That you can remedy certain things in your life by going somewhere else besides God. Whether, whether it's Lakeview Christian Center, when you, Lakeview Christian Center, when you cry aloud, seek my face. Or whether it's Keith Collins or your personal life and situation. When you cry aloud, seek my face. And that's what prayer closets allow us to do. Turn down the noise of other things. Get away from distractions. Pull back to the stronghold. Go inside where the walls are 10 feet thick. And gaze upon the beauty of God and inquire in his presence. That's what prayer closets do. Oh Lord, may it be that we are after one thing like we're after nothing else. The seeking of your face. Let's stand up together.
Lord, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Thank you for your word and the lives that you use to inspire these words. Lord, this is church and outside those doors is, is just reality. In some ways this morning, we came here and took a break from reality to be here. Lord, maybe all over this room are voices that you hear crying aloud. They're in a place in their life where they're crying aloud. you meet each person who's come today would you draw near to each voice that's crying aloud whatever reasons their life has generated that cry or maybe it's tragedy generated that cry maybe it's a day of suffering that they didn't see this coming and they didn't know it would last this long maybe for some it's the, the end of a relationship a life that's been knit and woven to another has suddenly come to an end death through divorce there's a cry going out from that life when you are the God who's listening to the cries of our lives you are the God who can lift us from these places you are the God who can rescue us from fear and make us confident speak to a couple of categories if you're here this morning and you know what it's like for your life to be crying aloud I just want to ask you have you ever taken your life and completely surrendered it and put it in the hands of Jesus Christ you come to the end of yourself in such a way as to say from, from this day forward my life belongs to Jesus Christ why Jesus Christ well, because there's no one like him he was sent by God anointed by God because he is God himself come as a man to reveal who he is and then to die our death So that death could be concluded. Death could be broken. And we could be restored to God. There's no one else. There's no other religious figure. There's no one. There's nothing else that restores us to the God who breathed his life into man. But Jesus Christ. He is the rock that God lifts our lives and places our lives in Christ. When does he do that? Well, he'll do it this morning if you want him to. If you're here this morning and and that's not been something you've done, you've not 
given your life over to God, you can do that right now. You can tell God, use your own words. You can just tell God, God, I'm turning to you right now. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. If you're here and you want to do that, you have this conversation with God right now. God, my life is crying out. God, you know what I've been going through and you know what life feels like. And here this morning, I'm hearing that. You want me to give my life back to you completely. You want me to trust Jesus Christ completely. God, this morning, I want to do that. I, I want to put my faith in this rock, in this Jesus Christ. Who, I hear he came to take my place. He came to die in my place. Forgive me of my sins. God, I believe that this morning. I believe he did that to reconcile me to God the Father. And I want that today. I'm here today, God. My life is crying out. I want that. Would you today, Lord, would you reconcile me to you? Would you bring me back into a relationship with you that starts right here, right now, from this day forward? God, I surrender my life to you. want to invite the rest of us who have listened and pondered and then considered the conditions of our own prayer lives, our prayer closets. And I want us to pray together as a church. When I cry aloud, you have said, seek my face. I want to join David. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Oh God, you know our story. Lord, you know in this room there's a hundred different reasons why we have or have not sought your face. But Lord, there's a moment. We want to join David. We want to be in this moment. When we cry aloud and you call us to seek you, Lord, we're here this morning joining David saying, Lord, we will seek your face. Lord, we've pondered, we've had starts and stops, we've built a little bit. But God, this morning as a church, we stand together and say, Lord, we will, we will, Lord. We will seek your face. We know our lives are going to cry out. We know our church is going to cry out. But you've invited us to seek your face. Lord, of all the things that we'll do, Lord, we're going to seek your face. Lord, the one thing, one thing, one thing we want to make sure shows up in our lives is to dwell in your presence, to gaze upon your beauty, to exchange and inquire with you. Lord, we are here to seek your face. Lord, would you start a new day in our lives? God, we pray this together. Lord, start a new day at Lakeview Christian Center. Lord, start a new day personally for us. Start a new day in our homes where we seek your face, Lord. That's in our hearts. One thing, one thing, Lord, captures us, owns us. We find it more valuable than anything else. Lord, remind us when our life begins to cry out, when we feel outnumbered, when we feel fear arising in our hearts, when we feel encamped against. Lord, remind us to find our stronghold with you, to withdraw into your presence. 
experience your nearness, to know you as our Father, to seek your face. Lord, your face will I seek. Lord, would you anoint us for this day? Lord, whatever else is in our future, God, would you anoint us for this task? Would you empower us by the Holy Spirit for this task? Would you come upon us with great power so that folks in this room who have never had much of a prayer life suddenly find a day of favor in front of them? And they've got a prayer life and they long for it and they can't wait to clear things out and be with you. But some in this room who have a history of wonderful encounters with prayer, but it's been years or months. Lord, would you change that this morning? God, I thank you for principles and I thank you for timelines, but I'm praying for right now, right here, your spirit to come on us in ways that affect us right now, right here. A new desire in my heart that I can't deny. A new obsession in me that I long for. God, visit us. Visit us here and now. And Lord, let us take from this summer prayer closets that travel with us all the way until we are with you in glory. God, may it be that 15, 20 years from now, we remember the summer of 2019 where God gave me a heart toward him, toward being with him, towards a prayer closet with him that I've never lost. Lord, let that be our story. Let that be our song 20 years from now, God.